Um, I invite you to turn this morning to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Um, so far in our What Is series, we've talked about what is the Bible, and we've seen that the Bible is the Word of God, and that through it, God restores our life. Last week, we talked about what is justification, and we heard that justification is how God forgives our sins by giving us Jesus, right? Jesus takes our place in judgment and then gives us his place in blessing as a gift, which we receive by faith alone. Uh, this morning, we're going to ask, what is sanctification? Now, kids, I know sanctification is a big word, but the meaning is easy. Sanctification means living like Jesus. And I know some of you are thinking, well, actually, sanctification means being holy. And you're technically right. Uh, but what does holiness mean? Uh, as I've said before, in the Bible, holiness is the word God uses to describe the kind of relationship that he has with the world and with us and with himself. Holiness is just the way God summarizes all the different ways that he relates to us. So the way that he treats us with justice and compassion and with mercy and with love. The way he speaks to us and the reasons why he speaks to us the way he does. The way he works at restoring our relationships with him and with one another when they've been broken. And the kind of relationship that he brings us into when he saves us in Jesus that's all summarized by the word holiness, which is why holiness means living like Jesus. It's learning how to live with each other and with our neighbor and with God the way that Jesus himself does. And I just want to add this before uh, we read our passage and dive into it. Uh, I think, well, actually, I know Christians can be afraid of getting holier. Because the fear is, the holier you get, the less fun you are to be with, right? For us, holiness looks like the austere monk with a long beard and a serious face, right, this face, uh, and uh, he doesn't laugh at jokes, he takes everything very seriously, and he's constantly judging and correcting people. Uh, and I know that fear exists because I've had it. And I don't think I'm that unique of a person. So if that's your image of holiness, like it was mine in the past, I want you to replace it with Jesus, who was constantly attending parties because he was invited to them, right? Weddings, dinner parties. People wanted him to come to their house. In the Gospels, Jesus, everywhere he goes, is eating and drinking and I think laughing and enjoying the company of people who are enjoying his company, right? Clearly, Jesus was enjoyable to be around. And when people were sad, they wanted to be with Jesus because he was warm and he comforted them. And when they sinned, they came to him knowing that he would forgive them and help them with their struggle, right? In other words, if holiness is about living like Jesus and Jesus lived a, a joyful life with people full of comfort and compassion and truth and, and love, then you can see then that growing in holiness means becoming more enjoyable, more compassionate, 
more patient, more just, more truthful, more forgiving, more gentle, more loving. In other words, someone who's really fun to be around. That's our goal this morning. Our goal is to think about sanctification so that we can learn how to live like Jesus, who brought so much joy and love and forgiveness and justice and truth and compassion to the people that he lived with because he's God. And that's what life with God looks like in the Bible. So let's read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17, and then we'll reflect on our three points this morning. The first is sanctification means seeking the things that are above. The second is sanctification means putting our sins to death. And then third, sanctification means putting on Jesus' character. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Uh, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's Father, reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to hear this morning how your word teaches us how to live like you because we want to be holy. Uh, We want to love like you love and be truthful as you're truthful and be just as you are just and compassionate as you are compassionate. We want to put to death uh, sin through you and come more and more uh, to bear your image. And so, Father, we pray that you would do all this now uh, for us uh, out of your overwhelming love for us. Father, may the words of my mouth now as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the first thing we're going to think about is that sanctification means seeking the things that are above. And that's obviously verse 1, right? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul was writing to the Colossian church because they are in danger of being torn apart by ideas that are either directly opposed to Jesus or that are simply being elevated above Jesus. So ideas that are wrong or ideas that are being too highly valued. But they aren't torn apart yet. Paul begins this letter celebrating their corporate worship, their praying with one another, and their effort to love one another. But the bonds of Christian holiness and fellowship that make those things possible are being frayed. So Paul writes to strengthen their bonds by redirecting them to the one who makes Christian life possible, Jesus. Which is why Paul tells them to seek the things that are above. And I think this image is worth sitting on for a second. Throughout the letter, Paul talks about our relationship with Jesus, uh, kind of like the glue that bonds us all together. When you read through Paul's letters, you'll hear him say repeatedly, you know, in Christ, in Christ. You can think of that very helpfully as the glue that binds us together. Without Jesus, we don't have a relationship with each other. And we don't have a relationship with God. But in Jesus, we are glued to God and to one another. Now, in any relationship, you have three choices. You can choose to end it, like when there's a breakup, right? It's not you, it's me, but really it's you. Uh, you can also choose to coast in a relationship where you're not trying to end it or help it. You're sort of just resting on the work you put in, hoping that will be enough to keep the relationship going, which is always a surefire way to weaken a relationship. But the third thing you can do is actually try to make it better, which involves thinking about what would improve your relationship and then taking actual steps to do those things. That's what Paul is telling us to do with Jesus in this verse. Seeking the things that are above where Christ is means putting effort into figuring out how best to live for Jesus. And I mean effort. Seeking means to look for something intently. Like when you lose your wallet or your keys or kids, you lose your favorite toy. What do you do? You seek for it. You walk everywhere. You move things. You, if you're young, make your parents come do the work for you, right? Like you put effort into this. You seek for them. Paul says, seek for the things that are above. Work hard to see and to act on the things that make Jesus happy and that are improve our relationship with him. Seek the things, you see, that grow our holiness. Now by things, Paul means attitudes and actions, how you treat people and how you treat God. And we know that because that's what Paul talks about, especially in the next verses, uh, but also because he says in verse 2, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So I read a book recently by a former chief FBI hostage negotiator. And one of the main things he talks about is how negotiators 
would get together and they would plan and strategize how they were going to respond in different kinds of situations. What am I going to do when the kidnapper ramps up the threats? What emotions do I want to show? Anger, calm, what am I going to say exactly? What's the tone of voice that I'm going to use in this conversation? That's most of what Paul means when he says to set our minds on the things that are above. In the moral philosophy of Paul's day, to set your mind is roughly equivalent to what I read in that book. It meant determine the kind of response you want to have when something happens. So in context, seeking and setting our minds on things that are above means considering how we are going to act like Jesus in our relationships. And one important way we can do that is by reflecting on the kinds of situations we're going to encounter and then think about how Jesus would want us to respond. Because honestly, most of the situations that we encounter and respond poorly to happen as a pattern. We know they're coming. And so Jesus is telling us, take the opportunity to think and reflect. When it happens, what am I going to do this time that looks like Jesus? What am I going to say? How am I going to think about it? Because holiness, that is sanctification, doesn't just happen. It requires prayerful, intentional, Bible-guided, Christian fellowship-influenced work. And just to say this, that is one of the main things that makes justification different from sanctification. In justification, we don't work at all. We receive a gift. But in sanctification, we do work alongside Jesus. And these two things very frequently go together in the Bible. And I want you to, I want you to see this. So just quickly, in Exodus, God fights for the people when he brings them out of Egypt, and they don't do anything, right? They receive a gift. And this is why the Exodus story is the prime picture of justification in the Old Testament. But then when they go into the wilderness in the promised land, God no longer fights simply for the people. He fights with the people. And their victories depend in large measure on how they respond and act. Or you can think about the Gospels. There are things that Jesus does himself by himself. And then there are things that Jesus gives us to do, right? So Jesus heals the sick in the Gospels, but then he always has someone else bring that person food and care for them. Or take this most famous miracle, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after being dead for three days, but then he has the crowds remove the stinking grave clothes. And this isn't because Jesus can't do those things. It's because he knows it's better for us if we do them, right? If God did everything for us, we would never grow. We would never mature. We would never learn to love in the kind of faithfully deep way that God wants us to learn to love as he loves. So to get back to relationship context, the healthiest relationships are always those where both people are putting in work to love each other, right? Right? That's another way to think about sanctification. Sanctification is planning to do things and to say things that help us love Jesus better. That's part of the work that we put in. What will make Jesus happy in this situation? So what do we need to plan to do? Well, the first thing we need to plan to do is to put to death 
what is earthly in us. And that's just verse 5. It's also our second point. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, by earthly, Paul just means the part of us that's bent towards sin and that likes to sin. And notice that Paul doesn't focus on how we're to kill sins in other people, right? Let me help you with that problem. He focuses on how we're to kill sin in ourselves. So at the end of verse 5, then, we're told to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness is not the best translation. Greed is the best translation, which is idolatry. And then in verse 6, we're told, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let me just say kind of a couple general things about this list of sins that we read. First, Paul highlights here both singular acts of sin and patterns or habits of sin. So in this context, this is not true everywhere in the New Testament, but in this context, it seems to me that sexual immorality means a singular act of sin and impurity means a sustained pattern of sexual sin. So sexual morality would be something like a one-night stand, and impurity would be a long-term affair. The same is true for passion and for evil desire. Passions flare up in a moment, and then they die back down. Whereas evil desire is something that is continually uh, turned on because it's being continually fed by choices and by actions. The same is also true of anger, wrath, and malice. So in the New Testament, in Paul's writings anyway, anger is a flare-up of anger. So you'd say, I got angry. Snap real quick. Wrath is a sustained state of anger. We would say that's an angry person. They're just mad all the time about everything. And then malice would be anger united to a desire to harm another person or another group deeply, right? Because we all get angry at people and we don't want to hurt them. But when you get angry at them and you want to hurt them, and then you feed that desire to hurt them, that is malice, which again is something sustained and fed by continual choices. So the point is Jesus wants us to put to death both the sins that flare up in a moment from time to time and also the sins that we habitually practice. And the second general thing I want to do is, is point out that when Paul lists sins like these, you can't help but notice that certain ones appear often, especially sexual immorality, anger, and idolatry. From what I can tell, those show up in almost all of Paul's letters. So Paul is sort of fixates on those three. Why does he do that? Well, I don't think he be it's because he believes that those who commit these sins are just the worst sinners. Um, I think it's because he recognizes they're the easiest to fall into. There are so many opportunities to be tempted to sexual immorality, anger, and idolatry. And those three things are rooted in deeply powerful emotions and desires, which you see God talk about all the time in the Old Testament. And they can display themselves in all kinds of ways, internally and externally, with minimal effort uh, at a moment's notice. And given the way Paul talks about them, I think he also recognizes that they are the hardest to dig back out of. 
And so the way that we relate to them needs to be intense. We tend to whitewash this, right? We put it to death and we're like, oh, you know, give them a little push. He says, kill them. Not just kill them, kill them with the same kind of intensity that Jesus showed when he was crucified to you for you to put judgment to death for you so he could justify you. In context, this, this analogy is, or uh, his point is, is that Jesus died on the cross for you. He was nailed through his hands and through his feet for you. He was whipped and beaten and had a crown of thorns pressed down on his head for you. And you have that suffering death given to you. In fact, verse 3, you're united to him in his death. Which is why you can actually put these things to death through Jesus. And I think from that analogy, we can also say that in talking like this, Paul is admitting something that we need to face head on, which is there's suffering involved in putting these kinds of sins to death. Fighting sin is hard. And these are some of the hardest and most painful to fight against, which is why they appear over and over and over again. Uh, but not just the hardest. I also think Paul includes these because they are also some of the most damaging things we can do. Uh, sexual immorality, anger, and idolatry have some of the most lasting consequences. They tend to cause the most damage to the most people the quickest, and they are some of the hardest to confess. They're some of the hardest to forgive, and they are some of the hardest to find reconciliation from. And if I can sort of move from those general observations to a specific observation about a, well, one unique uh, word that Paul gives in this letter. These are especially true when we talk about them in the context of different cultures and communities coming together. So in verse 11, Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, Paul isn't just being rhetorically powerful here. These are groups that made up the church. And uh, Paul has a very specific word to say about uh, the way they were treating each other as groups. Now, when we hear this list of people, um, circumcised, uncircumcised, Greek, Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, we do not immediately understand just how volatile these groups living together in the same body could be. Right? We don't understand the suspicion and the anger and the distrust and the malice that came when these groups were brought together by Jesus into the church because these groups just have no real connection to us, right? They may as well say men, women, children. Like it. So I thought, what are some groups that if we had them all of a sudden together in the church as new Christians would reflect this? Here's what I came up with. You guys are going to feel it. Uh, take the Black Lives Matter community and the Make America Great Again community and put them here in the same church. Put them in the same building. Put them in the same seats and then tell them, you have to put your anger against one another to death in Jesus. Because Jesus died for them and lives in them too. 
And you have to put your malice to death because Jesus died for them and lives in them too. Tell them that together they are not to seek what improves their relationship with their various tribe, but with Jesus and those he's gathered together from all these different tribes into one body. Do you feel that? When I came up with this example, I got all nervous. Like people were going to, because there's so much tension. That's the tension. And it's in that context then that we can really see the wisdom in Paul's counsel to put away obscene talk from our mouths. Paul only says this here in this church. This is the only time this word shows up in the entire New Testament. The word translated as obscene means something like taunting speech. Uh, So it would describe uh, someone blaspheming someone else's God in order to provoke them. Or it would mean trying to provoke members of another culture or community with your words. So the Greek word barbarian is what the Greeks used to describe non-Greeks. It meant literally, it means literally nonsense talkers. It'd be the equivalent of we said blah blahians. Blah, 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 blah. It was used to describe every non-Greek speaker as uneducated, stupid, and frankly unnecessary. Why are you even alive? You're not Greek. You have no value. It's actually pretty close to what we mean by sort of uh, red and blank trash. I don't want to give our kids racial slurs. That's not going to be helpful. But that's what, when you hear those terms, that's equivalent. That's obscene talk. It was meant to put down others, elevate yourself, provoke them, tell them they are unnecessary. Which adds a whole nother layer to Paul's point here, doesn't it? Circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and, and maybe free too. That one's not totally clear to me, but certainly all the others are the equivalent of ethnic slurs today. They're roughly equivalent to the N-word for all these groups of people. Stop it, Paul says. Put that away. That doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't make Jesus happy when he brings in people of different groups and then you tell them they have no right to exist or be equal members in Christ's church. That doesn't look like joy. That doesn't look like thanksgiving. That doesn't look like welcome or humility or hospitality. It's not holiness. It divides you from Jesus and it divides you from one another. And given the level of history and provocation, is it any wonder then that uh, they were told to seek and set their minds on Jesus? Given that this is how they had learned to live with these other groups of people? They needed to actually plan ahead. Now, when I see them, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? How am I going to show them Jesus? What do I need to do to plan and pray for a Christ-like response in my relationship with these people who I've been at, at war with, basically, and my family have been at war with for generations? Which brings us then to our last point putting on Christ's character. So if we're to put sin to death in ourselves, we're then also to put on Christ's character. And this is verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It takes on a whole other meaning, that list, doesn't it, when you kind of know some of the background of infighting. Let me just say a couple brief things. First, I want you to notice that for the most part, the things that we're told to put on are not the opposite of the things we're called to put to death. So, you know, we're to put to death sexual immorality. He doesn't say put on chastity and fidelity. And that's not because we're not to do that. I mean, obviously, the point of putting, on, putting sins to death is to put righteousness on. But Paul here has a different goal than spelling out what's obvious. Paul's goal is to repair and strengthen the bonds of love and unity that have been straining the body because of how they've been treating one another. And holiness is central to how those bonds are repaired and preserved and strengthened. So if you think in terms of God himself, who is the definition of holiness, right? God is the holiest one, right? Holy, holy, holy. The angels sing in Isaiah, most holy. There is no one holier. Well, what does holiness mean in Isaiah? What does it look like? Well, it looks like truth. God tells us the truth about himself. He tells us the truth about each other. It looks like justice. And it looks like a desire to show mercy. It looks like love that longs to be reconciled to his people. Is it any wonder that after God reveals himself to be holy, he goes on in Isaiah to talk about how he's going to solve his people's relationship breakage? It looks like the actions that actually accomplish forgiveness and reconciliation. God is holy not simply because of his existence, but because of his actions as well. God's holiness is not just the thing that condemns us, you see. It's also the things that saves us and desires to save us. So with God in mind, look at what we're to put on. Compassionate hearts. Throughout the Bible, God is described as having a compassionate heart, a heart that desires to live in a blessed relationship with sinners, a heart that chooses people over pain, that chooses relationship over sin. It's his compassionate heart, his choice to be compassionate, that moves him to show mercy. We're to put on kindness. What does God's kindness do? Well, it shows kindness to those who are hurt, to those who are weak, to those who are undeserving. That's what makes God kind. When God shows humility, what does that mean? Well, it means that God so values a relationship with us that he chooses to endure the most obnoxious things to keep that relationship, even our sins. It also means that God is attentive to our needs, uh, along with his own. Meekness means not insisting that you have your own way even when you're in the right. It means wisely letting something go. Patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. These are all things that God does for us. This is all part of his holiness. I mean, I could go on, but I think the point is clear. Sanctification here means 
putting on the character of God. This list is drawn from the way that God describes himself and how he lives with sinners. Sanctification means putting on the character of God that you need if you are to joyfully live with your fellow sinners. So back to Jesus for a second. Jesus' whole life, we can forget this, is one on earth is one where the perfect God, the Holy One, is constantly surrounded by sinners. But he loves going to weddings. He enjoys the people who are there. That is his compassionate heart. I'm here for these people because I love them. He meets traitors to his country in Matthew and Zacchaeus, who were both tax collectors, which is what that means. They were traitors. But he takes great joy in making them his friends. That's his kindness and his compassion. When Jesus is talking about needing to be crucified, Peter gets this close to telling Jesus to shut up. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the line. And yes, Jesus rebukes him, but then what does he do immediately after? He goes and he eats with him and he calls him his friend and he restores the relationship. Right? Jesus chooses to show meekness, patience, to forgive. That's what holiness looks like. That's part of what holiness looks like. It looks like working to maintain and grow a relationship with your fellow sinners in Jesus' name and not just grow it, but do it with joy. It's what Jesus did, and it's what we're to put on. So let me kind of just draw to a close this way, two brief things. What I want us to see this morning is that negatively, sanctification means that we need to put sin to death in our lives so that we look more like Jesus, so that we protect one another more, bring more joy to others, make it easier for people to live with us as friends and family, make it easier for people to join the body of Christ and be welcomed in the congregation. Uh, and we're to do that because that's part of where God's happiness and joy is found. The more we put those things to death, the more we get to experience God's happiness and joy in bringing people together. But positively, sanctification also means choosing to live compassionately with our fellow sinners. It means pursuing a joyful relationship with the people who are around us, valuing them by showing them mercy, by being kind to them, by having compassionate hearts towards them, by being aware of their needs and working insofar as we are able to meet them. This is also God's holiness. And it's also the holiness that he showed us in Jesus. And it's what he wants us to show to one another. So, beloved, let's be concerned with putting our sins to death. And let's also be concerned with showing God's love to those whom he has brought into our lives through Jesus. And in that way, we can grow in holiness. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you that your holiness is revealed in uh, you choosing to live joyfully with us, though we are sinners. Uh, thank you for uniting us to Jesus and his death so that the penalty for our sins could be paid. 
and so that uh, we can work to put our sins to death in his name. And thank you for uniting us to him in his resurrection and ascension so that we can uh, put on your holy character and pursue living in joy with our fellow sinners. Father, help us to do this because we want to uh, be more faithful to you. We want to grow in holiness. We want to experience the joy and the happiness and the fellowship that comes from being holier. And we want to have a congregation where whoever you draw here finds the welcome of Jesus. So please do this for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.